Welcome to Women Who Sarcast. I'm Kathy Barron. My co-host, Poonam Saxena, is an education consultant and parenting specialist with 20-plus years of professional and advocacy experience and an author. She is the host of EDU Me podcast and empowers parents to become partners in their child's education. Welcome, Poonam. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Kathy. I'm so excited to be here, and you make me sound so professional. I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, you wrote these words, not me, so. Oh, it was a I good guess, day. I guess you need to look yourself in the mirror and say these words every day when you get up. <laughs> yes, I will have the mirror start telling me these things. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into today's uh, somewhat sarcastic topic, uh, tell me a bit more about EDUME and the mission. So EDUME was actually born out of a desire to help parents. If you look at the education pie, the teachers, administrators, and districts all are one piece of the pie, and they dictate how our children are educated, how they're tested, how they're promoted, yada, yada, yada. Then there's a student piece of the pie who are the receiving end of these um, decisions, and they need to perform. But the important piece of the pie that's missing in many conversations are the parents, because they not only understand the district piece, or they can understand the district piece because they're adults, and their child, they have to advocate for their child because so many times children are unable to vocalize what's going on with them. So it's very important that we bring parents into the education conversation. And I saw that not only when I was a teacher, but also when I was volunteering in my children's schools for 18 plus years. So that is why we have EDUME and we're having a great time. So how is EDU Me supporting parents and their children during this pandemic? What's the number one concern parents voice regarding homeschooling their children? Not having enough time to do it all. Because now they're not only educating their children at home, which is different from homeschooling, Kathy, and that's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, schooling at home is different than homeschooling. And that's what we are doing right now with schooling from home. But we haven't had to do that before. Most of us are not educators. So we're trying to figure out how our children learn and teach them on the fly. Right. And then we still have have our jobs. So we're really doing our, we're doing two jobs at the same time now. What are like the top three things parents can do to teach their kids or maybe not teach their kids. I mean, <laughs> what's the advice you're giving to parents? I'm telling them that they need to take a step back and breathe because for most of them, this is not their wheelhouse. And teaching their child is hard, and that's okay. So don't worry about that part of it. The other thing that I'm sharing with them is to make memories Right now is the longest period of time that most of us will have with our children ever again in our lifetime. 
So make it memorable, do fun things, because my older children can't remember whether the dishes were put up and the laundry was folded, or I was a completely crazy person. They have no recollection of that, but they remember the memories that we made together. So this is a great opportunity for you to do that as well. Mm -hmm. And the third is teach your child life skills right now. That's what I would tell them. Teach them how to be independent. Let them do things in the house that create independence. You know, I learned how to change a flat tire before I could drive. If your kid is old enough to drive, teach them how to do that. It's a, it's a life-saving tool. And right now is a great time to do this, those types of um, skills that will allow them to be independent and not have to rely on someone else. Right. So now that the summer months are coming, it <laughs> kind of throws, I mean... Is it a different dynamic during the summer? It is because we don't have classes, right? Right now, our academics are kind of eating up some of our time. But when school ends and there's no assignments and projects and we can't go anywhere for the most part or we're being very cautious, then it throws a whole different um, wrench into the equation. So... I don't know. Summer is going to be interesting for a lot of people, including me. It is likely we will be together for six months, right? From March till August. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have been together for the last two or three months trying to figure it out and what to do with their kids. And now they have the summer months to figure it out. It's like they're going to become a camp counselor for a stranger. <laughs> a lifeguard. A lifeguard, right. <laughs> All these new hats are going to be on for the next few months. So, Yeah, and it's, it's all about allowing yourself to do the best you can every single day. And some days will be rock star days, and some days you're going to want to crawl back into bed at 9 a.m. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or not get out of bed at all. <laughs> or, or not, yes, you can choose to do that as well. Don't know what the house will look like, but you know, yeah, it's just a really strange time, but it's okay. This is a, right. another life skill that we have to, to learn. Right. Yeah. So you're currently working on an autobiography. <laughs> Tell me more about the project. So I have wanted to write an autobiography for, oh gosh, probably 10 years and that's saying something because I don't think I'm that old, but I've <laughs> always felt like I needed to, to share some things that had happened because my parents immigrated to this country and I was born and raised in the South. As you can tell, I have my Georgia twang going on right now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but there are some experiences that I had growing up in, in rural Georgia that probably could have happened anywhere in the country, but I wanted to share them in, in a book. And so I finally, after starting it so many times, have decided to do it in short story form. And um, it's just all about the nuances between the two cultures and the experiences of being an immigrant child. Mm -hmm. And I think the goal for me is that those who are not first, second, or third generation Americans 
that those guys actually understand what it is like to be an immigrant or an immigrant child and realize that it is difficult. So we should be kinder in our spirit towards them. So your parents immigrated from? India. Okay. In the 1960s. Imagine being in the South as an Indian in the 60s. Yeah. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been. Yeah. And then you came along. And I just totally threw a wrench in their lives because, (laughs) um, you know, that's just who I am. Right. (laughs) So are you an only child? I am not. I actually have a younger brother who is a um, physician out in California. Mm-hmm. And we are exactly 12 months and 12 days apart. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Your parents must be mathematicians or something. Well, my dad's an engineer, if that counts. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he calculated when they were going to be born. I I guess either that or, you know, it was a great accident. I have no idea. (laughs) So give me an overview of kind of the different traditions that you speak in your book. I know there's one called bleaching. Yes. So imagine that you are an Anglo-Saxon. We'll use that term. And you go to the beach and the tanning salon because you want to become tan, correct? Because you believe that that darker skin is more attractive. Mm -hmm. In India, it's quite the opposite. You want to be fairer. And so you go to bleaching salons as opposed to tanning salons. And it's just as horrid as you can imagine. Right. Um, You know, you walk in like you're getting any other spa treatment and they slather this bleach on you. It's wow. bleaching cream. And, you know, literally they're applying diluted bleach to your skin, which is in my non-medical expertise is worse than actually tanning. But I don't know that because I'm not a doctor. It's my theory. Right. I mean, pouring bleach on your skin doesn't seem like it would be healthy. Somehow, if you shouldn't ingest it, I don't think you should wear it. Call me crazy. (laughs) Can I say that? Yeah, you can call yourself crazy. Oh, okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) If the shoe fits. Right. Well, it's just like, you know, when you're younger, we would put baby oil on ourselves to tan. Mm -hmm. And... Women would put perox or guys too, I guess, would put peroxide in their hair to make it blonder. So there's a lot of craziness out there. Right. And it's all societal pressure, right? When we were growing up, you and I, Kathy, you know, the copper tone baby was the big thing, right? Slather copper tone on and you too can have this tan. Mm -hmm. This golden brown look. Yes. Yes. And, you know, you should have the smooth, silky look going on as well. Never mind that you're going to look like a dried prune in 25 years. When you go to these bleaching salons, it's the same type of mindset. Mm-hmm. And it brings about, as I was writing this chapter, and you and I discussed this earlier, it brought about a side of me that I didn't realize existed. Well, I probably did, but I didn't 
bring it to the forefront. And it's really about how we, as a society, decide what is attractive and what is not. In India, the fairer you are, the more attractive you are, and the more marriageable you are. Okay, well, that's just dumb. Yeah. Who thinks that that's a good idea? No one. But but that is how the tradition and culture of India has, has evolved. And I'm not saying that it's like that everywhere. So let me preface it with all that not every single person feels this way. But there are bleaching salons out there. And if you look at many of the Bollywood actor actresses, they are pretty fair. So right. they've got to be doing something. So let's say that you can't afford to go to a bleaching salon, just like you can't afford to go to a tanning bed, or you live in the middle of Arizona and you can't get to a beach and you put ba- baby um, oil on and you <laughs> put your you know little folding chair out in the backyard with this little metal reflector thing, right? That's mm-hmm. supposed to make you tanner faster. Okay, no, no, no. Society should not think that's okay. And so what transpired out of all of this, because I did grow up in this country and I had been to several bleaching salons, I admit it, um, is why is that okay? And why do we discuss physical attributes as a part of someone's character? And so the whole diversity thing really changes the the dialogue for me, because at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about. Well, I think even like in America, there's traditions when you meet someone, then you got to meet their parents and then religion's part of it and the politics mm-hmm. are part of it and income and class are part of it. And parents want to make sure that the man can provide for her and to have kids and, you know, so there's... There's all that on top of appearance and the look. And in America does it a little bit differently. Let me rephrase that. Love marriages, because that's what most American marriages are, is you meet someone, you fall in love, and then you get married, right? Mm-hmm. That's the normal um, sequence of events. In India, a little different, because if it, if it is an arranged marriage, and there is love marriage now, But in an arranged marriage, the parents meet before the potential couple meets. How do they find out about each other? Oh, girl, it is all about the marriage-making network in India. Are you kidding? Mm. There's like a whole underground auntie thing where this aunt knows about this kid who's a marriageable age. I mean, it's a whole underground thing. Wow. So it's like a network It is a strong network. Yeah. We have stayed away from it with our children so far, Mm -hmm. but it is a very strong network in the community because they want to find um, compatible matches. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a dating service, but not. It's eHarmony by people. (laughs) Right, real and, life. And, and there is actually an Indian eHarmony out there. Mm-hmm. There's several, there's several actually, which I, it, I think is hilarious. 
So it's like arranged marriage. So it should be A harmony, not E harmony. <laughs> it's actually called shadi.com and shadi means marriage. So it's all about, you know, finding your your mate. But it's it's different because even though you meet the parents and the immediate family of the person that you may marry, you ne- don't necessarily need approval from their family outside, right? They're the aunts and uncles and cousins and all of that. Mm-hmm. In India, when you get married, you marry both sides of the family and the extended family. So between my parents, I have 17 siblings on their side, and my husband's family has 15 Wow. From his parents' side. So, you know, we have a very large extended family, but we've married into that family structure. Which I guess in some ways that happens here, depending on how close your family is and if you, you know, how many cousins you have and and that sort of thing. So even in America, the Indian culture stays pretty strong as far as the marriage, the arranged marriages. It can be, yes, very much so, very much so. All you have to do is plug in the right person and they will put their feelers out. Mm -hmm. So um, I've had a couple of cousins, you know, call me and say, please see if you can find a match for my daughter. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not going to do that. So what happens when you turn them down? I mean, are you shunned upon or excommunicated or... Well, I'm a little more PC about it. I just say that I don't know of anyone right now, and I'll let you know. Mm, okay. So there's there are all kinds of dynamics that play in to to the Indian arranged marriage scene. It can be anything from like my parents who met one time before they got married to you know my my brother who fell in love with his wife. So do you feel like there's pressure from your relatives to, as far as your children are concerned, to have arranged marriages? No. (laughs) And if there is, they don't tell me about it because I think they all know me. They may tell my my parents or my in-laws, but no one tells me because I think it should be the child's decision. It was my decision to have an arranged marriage. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think it should be my children's decision to tell us whether they are ready or not. And if they want us to help them or not. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Well, when you live in in a country that love marriage is so prevalent, you have to adapt. You can't just keep those same ideals and move forward. They just don't work. So is it the the boy's family that reaches out to the girl's family? Well, it's really interesting because it's very important that the girl get married. It's not as important for the guy to get married. Don't ask me why. (laughs) I I mean, I really can't explain it. I can only assume what the reasoning behind that is. Well, exactly, exactly. But um, so there's something called... The biodata. This is a personal resume that you send out. Just like you do to a job, you send your your um, accomplishments and your skill set and all of that. 
but this is the personal kind. So you're sending it to potential um, suitors and you hope that they don't put you in the reject pile <laughs> because you're putting out these, these um, descriptions that are really interesting, right? Your height, your weight, um, your skin color, fair, medium, mm. dark. Yeah. Your education. If your family has like a Nobel laureate, you want to talk about that. Anything to keep you out of the reject pile is what you want to do. So basically, like anybody else, they lie on the resume. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could lie on this, but because um, the network is so strong, it's really hard to get yeah. get by with it. But it's, it's a really interesting process. So you send out your bio data, and if someone is interested the guy's family will get back to you. They'll get back to you. Okay. Yes. And they will say, Ooh, we, we like her. Can we meet? And then if there's this whole drama about, she has to get, the daughter has to get dressed up. She has to look very demure and quiet and introspective, which, you know, I don't do well at that. So <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I the whole part. <laughs> That did not work well for me, but I never met my in-laws until the day we got engaged. Mm. So, that, so it's a little different, but in traditional customs, the, the boy side comes and looks at the girl and her family, and they have some dialogue about, you know, how great their kids are and whatever. And then they go from there and the boy comes too, you know. And mm -hmm. I put the boy in quotes because he's a potential groom. But what's interesting about the whole thing is, let's say you get through all of that, right? And you get, you're getting married. There is a ceremony. One of the very first ceremonies in a Hindu marriage is you take a garland of flowers and you put it over the person that you're choosing to marry, which is the bride and the groom, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the guy has accepted the proposal from the girl, which is why you're getting married now. But when the garland is exchanged, the girl is putting it on him first to say, I choose you. Now, I'm sure I could dig somewhere in Indian cultural history and figure out why that is. But I find it very interesting that that's how that works. And I never really thought about that until you and I are sitting here talking, but hmm, things that make you go, hmm. So even though the boy has picked the girl, mm -hmm. she basically has to reciprocate that with Correct. the yeah, garland. Mm -hmm. And what if she doesn't? I mean, she doesn't really have a choice. <laughs> well, there's a lot of money that has been spent on the wedding. So I would right. assume that... 99.9 .9 of them are not walking off the stage. <laughs> They're but not leaving the groom on the, on the stage. I, I don't know of anyone who has, but boy, that could be an interesting project to find out. <laughs> Do some research. Yes. Standing at the altar. Can you Google that? I'm going to Google and find out. I'll keep okay. you posted. 
All right. So aren't Indian weddings like three or five days long? They are. They are. They are incredibly long. And each day there are many rituals and customs that occur. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting about it, and the thing that I like the most about Indian weddings, besides all the hoopla and the dancing and the energy, and obviously getting dressed up, is the fact that every single family member has a role in the wedding. Like my dad's sister had a role. My mom's sister-in-law had a role. Like every single family member has a role that they play in the ceremony. Interesting. It brings about a lot of love and um, connectivity Mm -hmm. within the family. So it's, it's heartening to see your extended family get up and, and support you as you move forward in your life. So then there's this party for five days and then you finally get married on, on the last day. Oh, so you have the party first and then you get married. Okay. So the the ceremonies leading up to, to it are, um, one of them is taking turmeric, um, powder and making a paste and it's an exfoliator. And you literally um, slather it all over the bride or the groom to exfoliate them so that, again, they can be fairer for the wedding. So the bride and groom, are they seeing each other during this the party before the wedding, or do they not see each other? Now they do. Now they do. Um, you know, in olden times, you did not. In okay. olden times, I'm talking, you know, I guess when I got married. So I've mm-hmm. been married almost 30 years. So mm. I know it's a long time, girl. It is a long time. And it was an arranged marriage. So that's. Yeah. So our marriage must have, was. You must have liked each other. You know, we only knew each other for three months when we got married. Mm-hmm. And we dated for two weeks before we decided to get married. So our first meeting was, remember I was talking about the resume when you send it out to your potential boss, mm-hmm. but when you, when you go in for that interview, right, they're not going to ask you, you know, will you please um, rebuild the stapler and the tape dispenser and all that, right? The little minuscule things. No right. one's asking, hey, do you put the toothpaste cap back when you're done? <laughs> we're like, all right, we're heavy hitting tonight. How many kids do you want? You know, where do you want to live? What is your profession going to be like? What is your vision? How how are you planning on taking care of your parents as they get older? All of those things are happening on those, well, at least an hour first date. Mm-hmm. So, so we did all of the heavy stuff first. So we always knew what our life goals were. And then we worried about whether the cap of the toothpaste was on. (laughs) And this was just you two. There wasn't any family involved. So our parents met first. They went. Okay. Well, we sent a bio data with pictures. Right. And then the parents met and then you met on it. Correct. Correct. And then we went out for two weeks and then we decided to get married. 
and we were married within three months. Well, that doesn't sound very unusual for Americans either, so. No, not at all. Not at all. I think think it depends on the two people that you're talking about. Yeah. Because you could, you know, people date for five, six, ten years and never get married. Mm -hmm. And then there's some that, you know, you get married within a few weeks. So it, it just all dependent on what what is good for the two of you. Right. But we would have never met each other had we not had um a common a common friend in between us. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. So basically yeah. you were set up as a blind date. Correct. What else in your book can you tell us about that you're covering? So I can share a story with you that I've shared with um, a few others, and it's about the Bible, and there's a whole chapter in there about the Bible. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm Hindu, or I was raised Hindu, and I still am Hindu, but I am not one who is devout and follows all the traditions and all of that, but at the end of the day, I'm Hindu. So when I was in fourth grade, remember, this is rural Georgia, everyone in fourth grade on one chosen day got a Bible from volunteers from the local church. And I mean, I don't know what church it is or what denomination. I have no idea. I didn't even understand it back then right. to know. So they show up with this Bible and, you know, everyone's being called to the room, to the front of the room to get their Bible. And I choose not to. Mm -hmm. And I very politely said, you know, I'm sorry, I am Hindu. And, you know, I don't think that I would like to take the Bible. One, because I didn't think it was okay for it to be forced upon me. Yeah. And And in fourth grade, how old are you when you're in fourth grade? What, 10? Okay. Okay. So you were even like back then, you were like, hell no, you're not uh, going to tell me what to do. Yeah. See, you see where I get it, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. such a conformist. <laughs> My belief is that everyone should believe in whatever they believe in and no one should be forcing it upon you. Mm-hmm. And even, even then I understood that. So what I didn't know was when I didn't take the Bible that day that my teacher actually called my parents and told them. Mm. And, you know, we're eating our dinner, you know, talking about our mundane day. And my dad goes, so you didn't tell us about the Bible today. And I'm like, how the hell do you know about that? (laughs) (laughs) You know what all 10 year olds do. Right. And so he said, well, your teacher called me and I don't understand. Why didn't you take it? And I said, well, first of all, we're Hindu. And second of all, I thought you might be upset with me. And then he did. He said something that I carried my entire life. And it's, it's actually quite profound that I would still remember it all these years later. So he said that there is not one religion that is bad. There is not one holy book that is bad. All of them teach you great things about how to treat other people. And so it's okay to take the Bible. And even at 10, I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe that he just said that to me. Mm -hmm. 
So I went the next day and I took the Bible. And I still have it somewhere. I don't know. It's somewhere in my box of stuff. But it's a reminder of the fact that we all need to be open-minded. And instead of building barriers because we don't understand, we should knock those barriers down and start asking questions. Right. So that was that's one of the chapters in my book because it had a profound effect on me. Profound. Um, so it's not really funny, but it's really enlightening. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, given the environment right now in America, there are many barriers. And I think this is a good reminder that um, we need to be more understanding of each other and learn about each other, not just assume how a person is and that you have to ask the questions to understand people. I think that's the hardest part when you're an immigrant from another country and you are not the predominant skin color Mm -hmm. of the country you're living in is that people immediately make assumptions about you. Just like Indians make assumptions in India, make assumptions about Americans. And they're probably right, but (laughs) well, I, I, that's a whole different episode. We're going to have to talk if you want to talk about that, but, but it's, you know, just like Americans have, have um, preconceived notions about Indians, you know, my favorite question that we got, we don't get it as much anymore is how do you get that gem to stick in your forehead? Oh God. And I'm like, huh? Oh boy. And I'm like, you know, it's just a sticker, right? Like you can just pull it right off. So for any of your audience members who don't know that, it's a sticker. You just pull it right off. It's not tattooed on there. It's not like, you know, super glued to your forehead. Right, right. I mean, it's literally a sticker. It's an accessory. It's an accessory. Yes, an accessory. So, yeah, so those are the types of things that I am wanting to bring light to in a humorous way of Mm -hmm. how different and yet how similar we are as people. It doesn't matter what the two people are or where they're from or what their beliefs are. They're two people. Well, I can't wait till the book is finished so I can read your short story autobiography because I think it's very interesting. I'm very intrigued by people's life experiences. And that definitely is something that I'm looking forward to reading. So hurry up and finish it. I'm trying. I really am, <laughs> Kathy. You know, you're going to be part, you're going to be my editor here. So you're going to have to uh, read it a couple of times, I'm afraid. All right. Well, I'm I ready. Just, I just put you on the spot there too. Thanks for the way. warning. <laughs> <laughs> Notice how I did that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can reach Poonam at edu.me uh, on Instagram, on Facebook, and you can reach her at edu-me.net. Yes. So check Poonam out, check her podcast out. She has great uh, guests and a lot of great information. You've been doing some Facebook Lives on Thursday nights as well. Is that correct? It is. It is. It's me and the camera, which is really interesting. But yes, I'm 
I'm trying to put out relevant information and helping people find calm right now as they're trying to manage their children. So it's practical advice. Mm -hmm. And with the summer series coming up, that should be very interesting. Yes, I'm, I'm working on that, trying to find some fun things for parents to do. Well, thank you, Poonam, for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yes, Kathy, so, thank you so, so much. What an honor it is to be on your show. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out. Absolutely. I love your show, and I love you, and I love our friendship, so I'm honored. Likewise. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Women Who Sarcast. Show music provided by Mike Imbasiani. You can find him at mikeimbasiani.com.